Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. In the last episode I mentioned a new graduate safety program starting up at Griffith University in Australia. I kind of hinted that I was involved, but I can now say outright that I'm moving back to Australia to help teach the program. It turns out though that the course registration page has an awful description on it, particularly the what jobs can you do after taking this course? And that's turned a few people off. If you want a more realistic flavour for what the course is about, then just read one of Sidney Decker's books or blog posts, and of course, listen to this podcast. I think you'll find the course is more attractive than it looks on the webpage. In other Drew news, I'll be doing talks for Teesside Skeptics on 3rd of July, and Sheffield Skeptics on 28th of July. If you're in either area, please come along and say hi. Thank yous this week go to Rich Black, VM and Arclight for promoting the show. If you haven't yourself yet left a short review and rating on iTunes or Stitcher, please take a moment to do so. If you enjoy listening, there are probably others like you who'd listen to the show if only they knew it existed. Anyway, on with the episode. This is episode 33, which I've called We Don't Kill Enough People. Let me start by making clear that I'm not advocating extra death here. Just noting the fact that safety is a very difficult topic to investigate scientifically because of the low numbers of deaths. There are all sorts of explanations and variations on exactly what the scientific method means, but here's a simple version that will help my explanation about the safety research. We start by taking observations of the real world. Once we think we know what's going on, we construct a model. This model lets us make predictions about the real world. We set up some sort of trial to test these predictions, and if they're very accurate, we have a good model. The predictions will never be perfect, so we go back around the loop. Sometimes we'll improve our model through small changes. Sometimes to get any improvement, we'll have to throw the whole model out and replace it with a better one based on new theory. Now, how does this work for safety? We observe that some systems or some companies are safer than others. Let's say company A appears to have fewer accidents than company B or company C. We try to come up with explanations for why. This is our model. Everyone at company A wears a uniform. Maybe wearing uniforms promotes safer behaviour. We predict that if other companies make their employees wear uniforms, they will be safer too. So we use our networking contacts at company B and encourage them to try out uniforms. Company B improves, but not to the level of company A. We realise that uniforms aren't the whole explanation, and we try to work out what else is different about the companies. Now, that's a pretty rubbish trial design, but hopefully you get the general idea. And unfortunately, I am actually giving a fairly accurate picture of how a lot of safety research is done. We'll get to the reasons for that shortly. Understanding the scientific method is important for companies as well as for researchers. Let's say that I turn out to be the safety manager for company C, and I want to improve our accident rate too. What should I do? There's a ton of books, bloggers and blowhards telling me the best approach but I want something that actually works. If there's a good model for what makes an organisation safe, 
then I can compare my own organisation to that model and work out what I need to improve. Of course, it's never that simple. One of the big complications is that changing an organisation is a whole scientific field in itself. It's not enough to know what makes one company safer than another, we also need to know how to get there. It's very similar to explaining what makes businesses successful financially. There are plenty of books telling you what makes Apple or Google successful. What they can't tell you is how to do that yourself. Now here's the bit that gets really hard. I started this little example by saying that company A was safer than company B and company C. In real life, how could I make this assessment? Do I look at lost time injury rates? Those just tell me how safe a company reports itself to be, which is kind of dodging the question. A company with a low reported accident rate could actually be a very unsafe company precisely because it has a lax attitude to safety management including reporting. And even if lost time injuries were a good metric, they're measuring the wrong thing from a major accident point of view. They're counting all the personal injuries caused by occupational hazards, which are not remotely predictive of major hazard risk. So why don't we just count major accidents instead? Because there aren't enough of them. Just take a look at the number of large passenger jet crashes over the last 10 years. 10, 12, 13, 8, 13, 7, 7, 12, 9, 6, 5. You see the pattern? No, of course not, because there isn't one. And that's across an entire industry. You could invent a new method which single-handedly prevented 10% of all airline crashes and it would just get lost in the noise. So whilst in theory I could line up all the airlines from best to worst, in practice a tiny change in how I score them would have a bigger effect on the order of the list than anything the airlines themselves could actually do to improve safety. So let's make it simple and say I split airlines into two groups, the most safe and the least safe based on the chance of dying in a single flight. In the safe group, my chance of dying will be around 1 in 20 million, and in the least safe group, around 1 in 2 million. That's a tenfold safety improvement. So should you only fly on the safe group? Almost certainly not. One accident every 10 years is enough to move an airline from the front group into the bottom group. And there are some airlines in the top group that you should seriously hesitate before booking with. There are statistical methods for analysing and explaining this more rigorously. But the simple way of putting it is that before I can explain what makes two groups different, I need to be sure that they are in fact genuinely two different groups. And they're not. The means aren't that far apart compared to the variation. Damn. That's pretty bad news for anyone who wants to research safety by looking at what makes safe organisations safe. And it's pretty bad news for any safety manager who wants to know if they're doing a good job. Or even for any safety manager who wants to know what direction to move to make things safer. So what do we do? How do we measure safety? If you get into the literature on this, or even just the HSE guidance, there are two broad categories of safety measurement, 
called leading indicators and lagging indicators. Leading indicators are predictors. They're supposed to tell us what the underlying risk is by providing early warning signals. Lagging indicators are outcomes. They tell us what the underlying risk is based on what's actually gone wrong. The two categories aren't as well defined as it sounds, because what's a lagging indicator of one thing going wrong may be a leading indicator of something worse going wrong. For example, fatigue is a leading indicator of maintenance errors. Counting actual maintenance errors is a lagging indicator. Maintenance errors, though, may also be a leading indicator of accidents caused by maintenance error. I personally don't find the whole leading-lagging distinction very useful, and I'm not alone. There's a great paper by Andrew Hopkins where he shows just how inconsistent the HSE's own guidance on leading and lagging indicators actually is, just because the line between the two of them is so blurred. Hopkins points out that the real question isn't about leading or lagging, but simply about the number of data points. If you have a lot of accidents, you can use them as a control and feedback loop for your safety. When things get safer, the number of accidents goes down and you pat yourself on the back. When things get dangerous, the number of accidents goes up and you need to do things differently. If accidents are very rare though, this feedback loop is too slow and too unreliable. Things could be dangerous for a long time before you have an accident. In high-risk industries, even one accident is probably unacceptable anyway. We've killed a lot of people and probably put the local branch of our company out of business. If we're unlucky, we've also made our locality famous in a way that's going to encourage only the worst sort of tourist. As we move backwards in time and causality before an accident, we create more data points. More data means a quicker, less noisy feedback loop. Even better, we can get through the loop and make things safer without ever actually having an accident. I like to think of these predictive safety measurements as three dimensions of the same cuboid. The first dimension is the set of safety practices. Organisations can benchmark their own practices against other organisations, against regulations, or against an ideal set of practices. Now, astute listeners may be thinking, but how do we know what an ideal set of practices is if we can't measure their effectiveness? Hold that thought. The second dimension is compliance. If we have a good set of practices but no one follows them, they aren't much use. We can measure compliance by auditing, spot checks and reporting systems. We know a lot about measuring compliance. Too much, in fact. Compliance is so easy to measure compared to the other dimensions that organisations spend far too much time worrying about it. The third dimension is the really tricky one. Process performance. You may have the right set of practices, people may follow your processes, but do the processes actually work? A good example is risk assessment. There are lots of ways of doing risk assessment and most people think it's a good idea. But does your way of assessing risk actually help people to make better decisions? An important question, but a hard one to answer. Hold that thought too. There's a fourth thing we can measure, safety culture. It isn't a dimension in its own right, but it influences all of the first three. 
A good culture will help an organisation develop good practices, encourage its people to comply with them, and drive good performance of those practices. What makes a good culture, you ask? Hold that thought. The first three dimensions, scaled up or down by the culture, combine to form a volume, which is the overall level of safety. For most systems, the risk is so small that we can't observe this volume directly, but it casts a shadow, which we call proxy indicators. Proxy indicators are things that are necessary to cause an accident, but aren't quite an accident in their own right. They tend to be industry-specific and they can be subtly misleading. In railways, for example, one proxy indicator is signals passed at danger, or SPADs. The idea is that trains going past red lights is bad, so you can measure safety by the number of trains that go past red lights. It turns out, though, that not all SPADs are created equal. It's a bit like good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Some SPADs are quite benign and others are terrifying. If you crack down on all the benign spads, which are easy to fix, that can actually distract you from the real problems, and in some ways make them even worse. In process industries, activation of the automatic protection systems is a proxy indicator. Processes are normally kept under control. If the automatic safety devices kick in to shut things down, that's a sign that control has been lost. On the other hand, there's a really easy way to game this indicator. You just reduce the sensitivity of your protection systems. Not exactly what the people measuring safety would have wanted you to do. In air traffic management, they have separation violations and runway incursions. When two planes get too close to each other, that's a sign that things aren't working as they should. I'm not actually aware of any particular unintended consequences of using those as proxy measures but perhaps a listener can enlighten me. Okay, remember those thoughts I asked you to hold? Let's put them together. I've mentioned five different ways of measuring safety and how they fit together. Applying the scientific method, we need to ask whether those measures combine to make a good model. And to do that, we need to make predictions and see if they come true. In other words, we need to use the lagging indicators to validate these predictions. But we can't. Not a hope. Not just practically difficult. Not just breaking the known laws of physics impossible. But genuinely mathematically nonsensical. You see, if we don't have enough lagging indicators to tell us whether we're safe, we don't have enough lagging indicators to validate the leading indicators either. Now think about what those leading indicators are the safety processes, compliance, process performance, and safety culture. That's right, in the strictest sense, we have no direct evidence that any of these things actually makes us safer. What we have instead is a patchwork of small bits of scientifically valid knowledge, tied together by logical reasoning. For example, I can't prove to you that using one hazard identification technique instead of a different one makes you actually safer. I can make a pretty plausible logical argument that failing to identify a hazard is a bad thing. I can point, for example, to the 10 to 20% of accidents that involve a failure of hazard identification. 
If I can then show you that one hazard identification technique is better at identifying hazards than another, that's only a small piece of the puzzle, but it's probably good enough evidence that you should be using my preferred technique. I'll give you another example. Someone asked on Quora if there's any evidence that having a safety message at the start of every meeting improves accident rates. Of course, there's never going to be any direct evidence for that sort of thing. There is a lot of research, though, on the best way to send safety messages so that people receive them. If you combine that evidence with a plausible argument that the safety message you're trying to send is a good one, then you can make sensible decisions about your communication strategy. As you imagine, the amount of logic flying around instead of evidence leads to lots of arguments. Humans are very good at using logic to reinforce our own preconceptions, rather than to make new discoveries. That's kind of why we developed the scientific method in the first place. There are plenty of things that seemed logical that just ain't so. Normally in science, when you get two entrenched positions, it eventually gets settled by someone designing a decisive experiment. In safety, we just argue at each other. That wouldn't be so bad if safety researchers all realised that none of us are physical scientists. We work with engineers, we come from engineering backgrounds, we use modelling techniques and notations that look very much like engineering, but our expertise is observing practice and learning lessons from history. That sounds a lot like social science to me. Okay, if you've listened this far, you probably deserve another accident story. I was tempted to talk about Texas City this episode, which has lots of interesting stuff about safety measurement, but the accident is too complicated for the time I've got left. So let's discuss instead Imperial Sugar. The Imperial Sugar Facility at Wentworth, Georgia, processed raw sugar, which comes from sugarcane, to produce granulated sugar, the stuff we use for baking or to put in our coffee. Did you know that sugar dust is highly explosive? Well, you'd think that at least the people running a sugar factory might have had an inkling. Turns out that pretty much anything that can be burned will also explode if you turn it into a dust cloud first. Combustibility increases with surface area, and a dust cloud maximises surface area. Lots of fuel in contact with lots of oxygen, just waiting for a spark. Cotton factories used to explode regularly. Flour mills and fertiliser factories still do. Except in fully automated plants where they can remove oxygen completely from the environment, the hazards are generally managed by preventing accumulation of dust, keeping the dust out of the air, and eliminating sources of sparks. Imperial Sugar was not some fly-by-night operation. They were one of the largest sugar manufacturing and packing facilities in the United States, producing more than 1.3 million tonnes of sugar a year. Despite having more than 300 employees, though, there was no company officer responsible for safety. The head of safety reported to the head of HR, who reported to the vice president for admin, who reported to the CEO. The factory at Wentworth produced more than half of Imperial Sugar's product. This factory did have a safety officer, who reported directly to the plant manager, 
but they were concerned mainly with occupational health and safety, and in particular staff training. For a factory designed to handle sugar, Wentworth does not appear to have been designed to handle sugar. The granulated sugar was moved about by bucket elevators and screw conveyors, none of which were sealed to prevent sugar and sugar dust from release into the work areas. There was no proper dust extraction system to deal with all this, and in the few areas where they did have a dust system, it was poorly connected and not large enough to deal with the amount of dust. So the sugar dust settled on equipment, lights, overhead beams, cable conduits, and presumably on everyone who worked there. The company's own publicity photos of equipment before the accident showed lots of accumulated dust. Even if the plant management weren't worried about sugar getting out of the conveyors, they were worried though about debris getting in. Most of the conveyors were covered, just not sealed, but in the tunnels underneath the silos there were some uncovered conveyors. So in 2007 they fitted steel guards around these previously uncovered conveyors in order to stop accidental or intentional contamination of the sugar. Until they fitted the guards, even though there was sugar dust everywhere, it was never in the right concentration for an explosion. This is known as the minimum explosible concentration. You need to have a certain mass of dust within a confined space to be enough to trigger off an explosion. But by fitting the guards, they converted a wide tunnel filled with dust into a narrow tube filled with dust. In other words, they increased the concentration up to the minimum explosible level. The first explosion occurred just before 7.15pm on February 7, 2008. Dust inside the guards fitted a few months earlier, ignited, probably because of overheating bearings on a conveyor. All of the sugar and sugar dust sitting all round the plant now came into play. Dust piled up on equipment is not particularly dangerous. Sugar dust on the floor presents an occupational hazard, but it has to be over an inch thick to be a fire hazard. Dust in the air, though, in the right concentrations, is deadly. So the first explosion occurred, and the shock wave was enough to send all of the dust on the horizontal surfaces around the plant into the air, providing perfect conditions for a series of secondary explosions. These ripped the factory apart. Concrete floors were torn up, brick walls fell down, and workers were trapped in the burning remains of the buildings. The fire suppression system, of course, was destroyed by the first explosions. Let's have a quick word about safety indicators. There was lots of evidence from quality inspections and workplace injury reports that sugar dust was everywhere. There'd even been previous small fires around the place, and a couple of weeks before one explosion in a dust collector on the roof. Hot bearings on the tunnel conveyors were a known problem. Having lots of evidence about a problem, though, is not the same thing as fixing it. In fact, it's easy to get hung up on collecting data when you already know you have a problem that you need to fix. There's even a memo back in 1967 from one of the refinery engineers, essentially saying, we don't need an outside consultant to advise us about dust. We already know we have a problem and we know what we need to do to fix it. 
That was 1967. 40 years later, and the problems still hadn't been addressed. In 40 years, though, there hadn't been a major accident. Throughout that time, regular safety training was conducted for all workers, just with no mention of dust hazards. A detailed plant risk assessment had been conducted by the insurer in 2007, and despite the risk assessors having very detailed training in dust explosion risks, the risk assessment made no mention of dust hazards. The best explanation the accident investigators could come up with was normalisation of deviance. Without a major accident, there was just no urgency to fix the problems. They dragged on and on and on, it was never the right time to do something about it. Once there was an accident, it was too late. Eight workers died at the scene, including two who went back into the burning rubble as part of the rescue effort. Six more workers died later of their burns, and many, many more suffered life-changing permanent injuries. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Check out the website at disastercast.co.uk, where you can find links to review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also send me feedback directly with questions, comments, and topic ideas. Keep safe.